Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, This morning, I'd like to approach our passage in a different way because, as you can tell, it's a minefield of controversy, at least in our day. Uh, Wives' submission to husbands, um, the patriarchy, as it would be termed, and, of course, the institution of slavery. In every exhortation, apart from those to children, and even that is um, a bit up in the air, it's out of step with our time. If this were not Los Lunas and San Francisco, I think that would have been received differently. So it needs then, this passage, something of an apologetic treatment to be set in dialogue with modern views and the way that we approach things now. Because it would be wrong to simply ignore the vast difference between the two groups. And moreover, and more importantly, I think, we need to defend the Scripture, the vision that it sets forth, against any detractors by demonstrating its wisdom and goodness in what it prescribes. So we are going to try to do that this morning along the way, arguing for what God has set forth here. So before getting into the particulars um, of marriage and the institution of slavery, I'd like to start with a critique that's made against this passage in general, and it's the critique of contradiction. And it goes something like this. The household codes that are set forth here in chapter 3, verses 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, are incompatible with the vision of things that Paul sets forth in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. All right, so if you read the literature, you'll find this is often um, a critique that comes up. So as I read the passage, um, try to pick up on the argument that's being made. Colossians 3, 10 and 11. You have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but all, but rather, but Christ is all and in all. So in one breath, the apostle erases the distinction between slave and free. Right? There is no distinction In fact, distinction there is uh, put by the translators. He just says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free. So in one breath, the apostle erases the distinction between slave and free, and then in the next, he seems to reinforce it. Verse 22, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters. So what's going on? You can see at least how this argument is made against Paul and what he's saying. Now, it only gets more complicated when we bring in a sister passage. That's Galatians 3.28 into the picture. I'll read that as well. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Again, we have the abolition of slave and free, but also... This time, even more radically, Paul says male and female. 
Again, some would point out, how does that fit with the command in verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands? If we are indeed one in Christ, how can a husband have authority over his wife? And how can one person literally own another? So it seems, some would argue, that the Apostle Paul is caught between two extremes a radical, egalitarian position on the one. There is no distinction. You are all one in Christ. And on the other hand, a reaffirmation of the hierarchical status quo. Slaves, obey your masters. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, one way (coughs) some have tried to get around this problem is to soften what the apostle says here in Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28, by interpreting um, his words as hyperbole or exaggeration. But I think that's the wrong route, because to follow such an interpretation would be to distort the gospel beyond recognition. Those distinctions that the the Apostle Paul mentions, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, are part of the old man who was buried in baptism. We have put on the new man. We have put on Christ who is being renewed, or the new man being renewed into his image. Now, if anyone wants to doubt, right, the, uh, the literalness with which the Apostle Paul takes those, all we have to do is point them to the um, seriousness with which he backs up his own words. Now, if we look at the early church, and it's there in the New Testament, a consistent problem um, was that of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, right? You guys are aware, having gone through Acts, um, having gone through Galatians. There were some, particularly Jewish teachers, who said that Gentiles, that's a non-Jew, if they wanted to follow Jesus, they would have to become a Jew. So for the males, they would have to be circumcised, the sign of Hebrew identity. Um, The whole family would have to observe the Torah, would have to follow all the regulations of Jewish life. So if you want to follow Jesus, you have to become a Jew. Now Paul, he stood on the other side of that debate, proclaiming that all one needs to inherit the kingdom of God, Jew or Gentile, was faith in Christ. That was the only thing necessary. And what he's saying is that they don't have to become Jewish. They don't have to go through all the rites of Jewish life. And what was his message? There is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ. And when the Apostle Peter, who was the leader of the apostles, got crosswise on this, Antioch was the hub of this new experiment that Paul was doing between Jew and Gentile. And Peter came from Jerusalem. And he was, as a Jew, hanging out and spending time with Gentiles. He was, again, denying, leaving behind that Jewish identity. But when certain other Jews came... Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. They were eating together, and he picked up his plate and went somewhere else. And when that happened, Paul publicly confronted him. He accused him, Galatians 2.14, of not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. What Peter was doing by drawing back from Gentiles who believe in Jesus was rebuilding the old divisions that the gospel had torn down. There is no Jew or Greek. We don't live that way any longer because of what Christ has done. So quite rightly then, the former distinctions 
they don't matter for the church. Right? We don't recognize ourselves, or, or sorry, organize ourselves as the world does. Right? We don't divide from one another along the lines of racial or cultural or economic lines, right? Because we're one in Christ. No matter where one comes from, whatever their background, so long as they believe we are one body. And because we're all justified by faith in Christ and not some other standard, we stand on the same ground. We share the same privileges with one another, again, because we are one in Christ Jesus. So you see what the apostle is doing. He takes this very seriously, this flattening out that the gospel brings. So where does that leave us, right? And I'm just trying to get you to see a little bit of the critique because it sets us up for the rest of the passage. So where does that leave us? Now, before we venture um, an answer, (coughs) here's what the critics say, right? Here's what they say what's actually happening with Paul. So to begin with, there's this theory of degeneration or capitulation in the apostles' thinking. So what it is proposed is that the apostles, um, uh, namely uh, Peter and Paul, they mailed it in when it came to household management. That is, they made peace with the prevailing power structures rather than challenging them. In particular, um, the institution of slavery and um, the male authority in the household. So rather than following the gospel to its logical ends, um, they just they mailed it in. They capitulated. Um, another theory, it's kind of close to this one, is the apologetic compromise theory. So those who argue for this, they state that the apostles, they made a strategic compromise with the status quo in order to advance the faith, right? In other words, they chose to soften the sharp edges of the gospel to show to the wider Greco-Roman society that, well, it's not so radical and it can actually fit within life as you know it, right? It doesn't have to blow up the whole system and start from scratch. So there's that argument. And then lastly, I think probably the most radical is the, <coughs> excuse me, the um, non-authentic theory, which proposes that the household codes, like we have in our passage, Um, And like we find elsewhere in the New Testament, um, Ephesians uh, 5, a couple other places, Titus, and um, I'm blanking on the other one, but Titus, we have these household codes. They argue that these are not authentic, meaning that they're later additions to the text. So it goes like this, generations after the Apostle Paul became uncomfortable with his radical egalitarian message, and they sought to tone it down by adding to his existing epistles, or by creating their own epistles in his name. So there's some who would argue our passage is just added in later, or that all of Colossians is just simply not Paul and someone else wrote it. Now, for obvious reasons, it would be hard for us to find agreement with any of these theories. And there are others. And that leaves us more or less where we begin. Um, in the middle of this uncomfortable tension between what the apostle says in verses 10 and 11 and then the household codes in the rest of the chapter. So how do we resolve it, right? What is actually going on? Is there truly a contradiction in this passage? Well, we can dissolve whatever um, seeming uh, tension there is by noticing what most of these theories fail to notice, 
and that there is a specifically future or end time uh, dimension to the apostles' words. So we're not backing away from the fact that Paul speaks about the abolition of these former distinctions. That's there. But he does so from the perspective of the new man, as he talks about in verse 10. But this new man, think back to the weeks um, before this. This new man, where is he? He's hidden with Christ in God. That's chapter 3, verse 3. And this new man is only to be revealed when Christ returns in glory, chapter 3, verse 4. So what we have in our passage is an unmistakable future element to the apostles' teaching. We have put on the new man who is being renewed, again, verse 10, meaning that this is a process, and it's not yet completed. So the vision of all being one in Christ, of the new man, where Christ is all and in all, it's a future vision. God is leading us to a future, to a day, in which the distinctions that we recognize now will be completely erased in Christ. It's a future radically different from the present. It's, quite simply, a new creation. Um, As the Apostle says, speaking to the Corinthians in the context of marriage, he says, But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened, for the form of this world is passing away. The form of this world is passing away. So the world as we know it today is headed for the dustbin. Something new is coming to be in which the current forms, right, the institutions and the structures of this world will be no more. Now we know for certain from Jesus' teaching that marriage and the family will pass away. That we will be like angels in the resurrection, Jesus says there in Luke 19. And so too, according to Paul, ethical and racial distinctions will also pass away. Right? It's a vision of something completely different. Again, a new creation. And it seems that the only thing that's going to be recognized on that day is Christ. Christ will be all and in all. So, the vision of verses 10 and 11 is a future one. And again, that to, large, to a large degree dissolves that tension. We're destined for the new creation, but here's the deal. We still live in the old one. We live between what is and what will be. And in the meantime, right, as we still live in this present fallen world, as we await what is to come, we must learn to live Christianly within the passing forms, within this world that is going to fade away. And that's what we find in our passage Paul is bringing the old into conformity with the new. He's bending the status quo to the vision of the new man where all are one in Christ. So he doesn't simply affirm the institution of slavery, but he sets the course for its abolition, as we'll see. Nor does he simply affirm the Roman vision of marriage, but he transforms it and he makes it more Christian. So you see, again, he takes the old things of the world, and he works them and transforms them to conform to what is to come. So to modern ears, right, as I mentioned, to modern ears, his household instructions sound repressive, or they sound backward, Um, but not then. 
He was paving the way for something new. And that brings us now to the particulars of his instruction. So rather than um, turning to marriage now, rather than affirming, affirming the marriage status quo, the apostle, in fact, challenges it on a fundamental level. Now, it doesn't seem like that on the surface, telling wives to be subject to their husbands. But if we understand more of the time, what the apostle is saying becomes clear. Now, it's true that that first statement, be subject, um, in that the apostle is consistent with the wider society of his day. In the Greco-Roman culture, the husband, or as it was called then, the pater familias, he had unchallenged authority over everyone in his household, right? And the household included um, slaves and their children. The household included um, his own children and also his wife, who was typically much younger than him. He would have been 25, close to 30. She would have been um, in her teens, likely um, under 15, right? He had absolute authority over his whole household. And along with his slaves and children, his wife was considered his property. And because that was the case under the law, he could do really whatever he wanted. And I don't want to paint too grim a picture. Um, There were good households. We find um, evidence of that. But it was pretty grim. Um, That unchallenged, absolute authority um, made for much abuse, as you can imagine. So the apostle is not really out of step with anything when he says be subject. However, he is out of step with the time when um, he gives the rationale for why wives should be subject to their husbands. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, But it stands in direct contrast to the inherited view, right, of why a wife is um, under the authority and completely submissive to her husband. He's out of step with it, and it comes from Aristotle, right? Aristotle was a philosopher, very influential, even still to today. He he, he says, here's the reason why. He says, again, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, And the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. So two things um, are worth mentioning there. First, he makes female submission um, the rule across society and not merely within marriage, right? In In all cases, women should be under men because it's by nature. Now, in the New Testament, that's not the case. It gives specific instructions to wives within marriage and also within the church, but not society writ large. And it's important that in our uh, discussion of this that we keep submission um, confined to its biblical parameters. And the second thing is that he roots female submission in their basic inferiority to men. Women are to be ruled, Aristotle says in another um, of his influential writings, because they lack the basic capacity to govern themselves, um, the rational capacity to govern themselves. Now, it hardly needs to be said that that is not the scriptural view. While we completely affirm um, against all the craziness of our day that there are real differences between the biological sexes, rational capacity is certainly not one of them. The ability to rule yourself is not one of them. So wives, and not women, are to submit to their husbands because it's fitting in the Lord and not because they're inferior. 
like Aristotle would say. So what does that mean then, fitting in the Lord? (laughs) It takes us to Ephesians 5, the definitive passage on marriage in all the New Testament. In verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For husband is head of the wife, as Christ is also head, or rather, as Christ also is head of the church. So a wife's submission is rooted in what marriage is, and that is an image of Christ and the church. It's not because she is inferior by nature and therefore fit for subjection, destined to be ruled. It's because human marriage is supposed to reflect divine marriage. So we have then between um, Paul and Aristotle two radically different starting points and two radically different trajectories for marriage. And Paul undermines Aristotle's vision and sets marriage on a more consistent course with the gospel, when all shall be one. Now, what's crucial to what he's doing is the weakening of the institution of the paterfamilias, like I mentioned, in which the husband has complete authority over his wives. Notice verse 18, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. And then in verse 20, children... Be obedient to your parents in all things. So whatever it means to be subject, it does not mean to be obedient. Obedience depicts a situation in which orders are being given and there is little say in the matter. Subjection or submission, on the other hand, suggests something quite different. A voluntary willingness to accept the leadership of another So the household that Paul pictures is not one in which the husband rules over his wife and children with an iron fist. It is, rather, an equal and mutual relationship in which husband and wife work together to lead the household, drawing upon their mutual experience. However, it's the husband who is held responsible and accountable for the decisions being made. So submission is in that context. Think of the garden, right, where it's actually Eve who is deceived and falls into sin, but it's Adam who's held responsible. That is the sense of the husband's um, authority or his headship. Now, again, it's necessary that we don't overinterpret submission and make it the defining quality of womanhood or what it means to be a wife, right? That's, again, closer to Aristotle than it is Paul. The picture that he paints is not a Victorian-era one, where we have a domestic and docile and ultimately doormat wife. And that's, in fact, where most of the feminist critiques of um, that particular interpretation lie. Um, And that was a big thing um, in the 1960s in the New Testament interpretation. And and essentially what they said was that that sort of Victorian-era interpretation, it robs wives of their agency. All that really matters is given to the husband, and the wife is left to merely follow his lead and to support him and, you know, um, just stay behind. But again, (coughs) that's not exactly the scriptural vision. Consider, for instance, um, Proverbs 31, right? That's the ideal woman in the scripture that's presented to us there. It says that strength and dignity are her clothing. Hardly the Victorian ideal. It says that she considers a field and buys it, meaning that she's no stranger to commerce and trade. 
It says that she cares for the poor, that she oversees and provides for her whole household, that she spins her own clothes, and that she commands respect in the public square. So what we see Paul doing is bending the wife's role within marriage toward new creation. And that's consistent with the scriptures as a whole, where it's elevating women and their roles. He's conforming marriage to the gospel until the resurrection when it is no more. <laughs> and he does the same thing for husbands too, right? He Christianizes the husband's role. This is even more harder to get. So he commands um, the husband to love his wife. Now, again, it's quite hard for us moderns to understand the power of these words. Because it seems for us, right, that marriage is all about love and nothing else, right? We get married because we love one another. But that was not the ancient understanding. Love hardly entered the picture. For um, the potter familias, right, the head of the household, marriage was about social status. It was about wealth, and it was about his legacy. So a husband's relationship with his wife, therefore, it wasn't governed by love, but again, his authority. He ruled his household, his wife, his children, and his slaves primarily for his own gain, right? For his own status. And <laughs> that begs the question, right? If that was the ancient view, where does our notion that marriage is about love come from? Where do we get that? Well, it comes from the gospel. Paul doesn't invent this command for husbands. He doesn't invent this command for husbands to love their wives. It came directly from Christ, who laid down his life for the church, his bride. So the element of authority is clearly there in the apostles' vision, but it's relativized. It's not the husband's responsibility to rule his wife, but to love her. So I think then we can speak of something like of a mutual submission in marriage. Both husband and wife submit to one another, but in different ways. A husband submits to his wife in love. A love which is patterned after Christ's love for his church, who himself submitted to death on a cross for her salvation. And so a husband's submission is to his wife's prosperity and well-being. Right? He bends his neck under that calling, and he lays aside his personal agenda. He lays aside even his own good so that he can serve the good of his wife and of his family. So if a husband is head over the wife, it's in that sense. Call back to earlier in the chapter, what is the chief virtue of the new man that we've put on in Christ? We're to put on um, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, but above all, we're to put on love. And that's what a husband does. If he's the head, he's going to put on this chief virtue, love. And so a husband's love really is, only the legitimate, is the only legitimate context for submission. So Paul says, husbands, submit to your wives, and husbands, love your wives. So we see, and I hope I got this across a little bit, um, is just how much Paul changes things, and he sets <coughs> the institution of marriage on a completely different course. So he directs it to the new creation. Uh, preparing husbands and wives for ultimately what is true marriage 
and that's the marriage of Christ and the church. Which leads us now to the difficult topic of slavery. And again, what we find is the same radical principle at work within the apostles' instruction on slavery. Again, he's working within the institution, bending it to the gospel. Now, that's all well and good, but for us, the question is, and for others, and quite rightly, why did the apostles not condemn the institution of slavery? It seems, if anything, is inconsistent with the message of the gospel, it's this. Again, literally owning another person. Now, there's much to say, and we'll come to it, um, but again, first, I want to work our way there. The household codes, such as we find here, are not uncommon in the ancient world. So we have many examples of philosophers and statesmen, statesmen um, giving instruction on how the husband um, ought to run his household. And as we've noted, there's quite a bit of overlap between what the apostles say and um, what these other men said in regard to the family. And that has led, again, some, right, to argue for this degeneration theory. Paul's simply confirming the status quo. He's just going with what's said in the wider Roman Empire, especially on the issue of slavery. But that fails to notice at least one major difference, that Paul, in fact, addresses slaves at all, right, that he speaks to them. And all the documents coming down to us from the ancient past, that's absolutely unique. We never find slaves being addressed in this manner. And while that may seem like a small thing, it points to the liberating and humanizing trajectory in the Scriptures. Those slaves have no voice culturally speaking. They are acknowledged and placed within the same footing as everyone else within the church. They bear the name brother or sister. So Paul addresses slaves, which again would have been quite radical, and then he holds their masters accountable to fairness and justice, chapter 4, verse 1. And here again is that revolutionary power of the gospel. Aristotle, we're picking on him this morning, he describes slaves as human tools um, and as an extension of their master's body. So in other words, a slave is useful like your hands or your eyes or your feet are useful. They're instruments. They get things done. He also compared slaves to animals. Um, they're there to help till the field, so on and so forth. So uh, Varro, another brilliant scholar of the time, he says this, um, Slaves become more eager to work when treated generously with respect to food or more clothing or time off. And then he goes to delineate more. But you see what he's saying here. The decision to treat slaves well is for pragmatic reasons. Not because they're humans with their own dignity. It's just pragmatic. It's the same reasoning as make sure you get an oil change every 3,000 miles because your car is going to last longer. Treat them well because in the end it's going to benefit you. It's advantageous for the master that he treats his slaves well. Again, it's not necessarily for their own sake, because they should be treated this way. And now there are some exceptions to the rule, uh, namely the philosopher Seneca, who's very famous for his denunciations of the way slaves were treated. 
But clearly what we have here is very far from the scriptural ethic. Instead, the apostle commands masters to grant their slaves justice and fairness. The very language he uses grants slaves a dignity they did not otherwise have. Slaves, too, are human beings with rights. They are owed just and fair treatment. Now, many philosophers of the time were concerned with justice and fairness, but not for slaves. Justice and fairness were for nobility. Justice and fairness were for the higher classes. What's unique to the Apostle Paul is this concept of justice for all, not merely those who were considered worthy of it by the upper classes. Even slaves had this dignity. So where does this come from? How is Paul just totally revolutionizing things? It comes from the gospel again. The equality of every human being is not a self-evident fact, like uh, the secular humanists would like you to believe. They just say, yeah, everyone should be treated equal because, well, everyone should be treated equal. It's not self-evident. The fact rests, or that rests on Christian assumptions. How could slaves be denied justice and fairness when their creator, the Son of God, emptied himself and took the form of a slave? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. The gospel took these assumptions of the ancient world and turned them on their head. The creator of all became a slave. Here's what I found. What is going on here? He became, <laughs> excuse me, he became a slave. <clears throat> Consistent with what Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And moreover, right, there's another thing worth mentioning. Because the apostle addresses slavery, that doesn't mean he endorses it or considers it a good thing. Now, some want to make that argument. Most recently, uh, there was a writing in the 1950s or 60s. I can't remember his name, but I think that's mistaken. So say a friend of yours got drafted to the Vietnam War and you wrote to him and you encouraged him on the front lines in the midst of all that was going on to obey his sergeant. Listen to him. Do exactly what he tells you. Don't, don't, don't disobey. Don't rebel. Do exactly what he says. Now, if we found that letter some 40 years later, could we read that and take it as your endorsement for the war? Could we take that as uh, summing up your views on the legitimacy of everything that was going on there? Hardly, right? Rather, what you're doing is you're addressing a very particular, very complicated situation apart from your views on the whole, right? Your views may be very different, or maybe they're not. But again, it's, you're addressing this particular situation. And it's the same thing of what the apostle is doing here. Just because he gives instructions to masters and slaves on how to conduct themselves within the institution of slavery does not mean that he approves of it. In fact, we find that the train of his thought moves in quite the opposite direction. Uh, Philemon, uh, a really short letter from the Apostle of Paul to uh, this man Philemon is about a runaway slave whose name is Onesimus. Um, he We don't know exactly, but it seems like what happened is Onesimus bailed on his master uh, Philemon, or Philemon, and, thank you, <laughs> uh, Philemon, and um, 
and, and somehow he got converted and end up wound up with Paul. And so Paul writes back to Philemon, and he tells him um, to receive back Onesimus. And he, and he says this, and um, it's only one chapter, and these are verses 15 and 16. He says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. So in other words, look at what the apostle is doing based on the gospel. He dissolves this slave-master relationship, and he replaces it with a brother-to-brother relationship. Thus, even before the actual institution of slavery was abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and the prejudices that make slavery possible. Your brothers. And so it wasn't until the 4th century after the Roman society had become sufficiently Christianized, that Gregory of Nyssa, the first person in recorded history, attacked not just the treatment of slaves, but the institution of slavery itself. So what's the bottom line here as we work our way toward a close? What's the bottom line um, in this apologetic? Well, there's two things. And the first, and I think it's always important for us to recognize this, is the remarkable change for good that the gospel brought to human life. You know, modern critics want to lay the blame for everything bad at the feet of the church and Christianity, right? All of it is because of the backward ways of religion in general, but Christianity in particular. But if we look at the actual situation, it's quite opposite. Almost everything good in modern life, Everything that secular people value and they defend and fight for, the equality and dignity of every human being, the abolition of slavery, the liberation of women, to name a few, have their roots in the gospel. This comes from what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the implications of it laid out in the New Testament. So as far as it goes for us, we don't need to be bashful or apologetic about our faith. Right? It seems sometimes we accept that narrative and we see ourselves on the wrong side of history, right? That we somehow have to, uh, you know, argue for, uh, you know, well, we're not as backward or whatever as you guys might think we are. We don't need to do any of that because wherever the gospel goes, human life is transformed for the better in this age. That's undeniable. And not only that, eternal life is given in the next age. And second, <coughs> and all we do, um, as I tried to point out in that first section of the sermon, and all we do, we are working backward. I mentioned this a few weeks before earlier. We're working backward <coughs> from the new creation to the old, from what will be to what is, from heaven to earth, right? So the vision that should direct our marriages as husband and wives um, and our families as mothers and fathers and children and grandparents and even our workplaces, the vision that should drive all this is the vision of the new man, the one body in which all distinctions are erased and all are one in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean the abolition of every last hierarchy. That doesn't mean any of that at all. But what it does mean 
is that we are to put off the vices of the old man. Um, greed and anger and wrath, these things uh, lying that uh, cause division and conflict. And we're to put on the virtues of the new man, compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and love, because these are the life of the new creation. That's what we're called to in our marriages and families, to try and embody, to try and direct toward what is going to be. And so as we turn now, toward Holy Communion, let's remember our Lord. He is the Master who became a servant. He is the Lord who became a slave for our sakes. He stooped in the upper room, right? We're there that night with the disciples when no one would assume the task of a slave to wash the dirty feet. Jesus stooped and It says he girded himself with a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. And he washed our feet. He went to work for us when we could not work for ourselves. He submitted himself to the burden of our sin and death upon a cross. He loved us and gave himself for us. And we live because he despised not the station of a slave and submission to our good. We remember what Jesus has done for us. You talk about the flattening of these distinctions. Jesus, he he came and became, he came a slave, assumed the lowest spot. So as we partake, let's remember um, his great love and receive it afresh. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So um, please come receive the elements, take them back to your places, and I will lead us in communion in just a moment.